0: Episode 61 of Fitness Behavior with Bevan James Isles, an interview with Ellen Levinovitz. Righto team, welcome along to episode 61 of Fitness Behaviour, your fortnightly podcast on the behaviours that create a lifetime love of fitness, so you get all the benefits that come alongside it. Well, this week's show, this fortnight show, is uh, a really good one. I've got a really good interview with a guy called Alan Levinovitz. He's the author of a book called The Gluten Lie. And I'm not going to go into too much detail right now, because obviously the interview is going to really go into the depth of what the book's about. And it's a really interesting angle around um, the messages we've sold around around the food and diet, and it's really interesting. I, I'll probably talk a little bit I did this interview a couple of weeks ago, so I can't recall exactly the questions I asked, but I I know for a fact that I find it really fascinating how in this modern time uh, people are getting defined by their diets, and this kind of self of identity around what I eat is becoming very fascinating. I'm sure what's well, I know that social media accounts are very influenced by the world you're surrounded by and the world I'm surrounded by is by fit people who tend to care about their health and so what I see on my Instagram and what I see on my Facebook tends to be people who are promoting their own exercise and nutrition life if I'm going to be honest Uh, it's a lot about people posting pictures of themselves looking great uh, or about what they're about to do with the exercise and so on and also just what they are eating and it's a really fascinating time around this and uh, there are some lots of complications around this as well, and what Alan has done in his book here is he's brought a different angle at looking at how we're sold messages around nutrition. Uh, it's it's a, it's a very interesting book. Now, as you're listening to this, because I know a lot of people who listen to this probably have a strong sense of certain nutritional rules that they are stuck to, and that, and you know they probably have really helped them. Like I know, for example, you know the paleo diet. The paleo diet has its critics. it has its people who really believe in what it's all about Um, I'm not going to necessarily say my opinion on that today because it's not really what it's about but what I want you to do if you ask someone who passionately leaves it like paleo is the answer to everything is to have an open mind to the discussion I have with Alan here because it's not He's it's he he gives us a a perspective that I think all of us should look at and learn at and how we see the world and it's a very interesting discussion so I'm going to put that on in a few minutes Um, Before I do, there's just one thing I want to talk about before I actually put Alan's interview on, and um, just I just want to share a moment with you guys, and it's just a moment that was really special for me recently. Well, actually, two moments. Um, And the first one is I got engaged. (laughs) Um, Just you know, I've been with my partner for seven years, Joe, and I recently got engaged to her, so it's pretty really exciting. Um, But. More on a fitness size, fitness exercise component. Um, I, I I got my running groups, and if you've listened to the show for a while, you know I have my running groups, and one of the you know I often talk about my get up to five product, and my get up to five product is that product for the new exerciser, and it's you know it's all powerful stuff. But we have a product called Race Team Epic, and Race Team is more our high end product, so it's for people who are doing half marathons, and our Epic one is. It's a product that's designed to push these people to the absolute max. So we, tr- we design a 10 week program where it's just absolutely, it's just hard and hard and hard and hard. And then at the end of it, we put this half marathon on, which is to call it epic is almost an understatement. They pretty much run up these crazy steep hills, run down, then they run up more crazy steep hills. And it's one of these events which people are terrified before they start. But then when you see them at the end, the elation they experience is just so powerful. And yesterday we actually had the final run for this latest group of Racine Epic that we've been running. And it's just been a really, it's just a really special day for my partner Joe and I and just the people who are involved in what we do because you see people overcome adversity in, in really powerful ways. And there's something about that moment, you know. You see people because very much on this day, I we don't coach them; they go off and they do their own journey. And I'm just at the finish line, just collect them at the end, and you can see in their face what overcoming this adversity means to them as they get to this finish line. Like there's often a lot of tears, um, the elation the high you see in their eyes, like I remember a girl, Kate, and you see her come across the line and and seriously, it was like, like she was on the highest drug of all. She was just wired and, you know, just, just the reward at that moment. And when these people sign up for a race team epic, you know, they train for 10 weeks and we train them and condition them for this race. So it's a very hard block of training that they are doing to be ready for this race. So they have to overcome so much adversity but even then, when they stand on that start line, they still have doubt, and they have a lot of doubt. And one thing we do in this race, which is in some ways a little bit unfair, but it's actually really powerful, is we, we, want, we encourage them to run the whole thing. And, and I know many, because the hills are very steep, that I know that for many people they could probably walk sections of it and still go faster than what they're running. And, and I get as a coach, and, and normally in many other races, I would actually advise, you know what, if you can walk faster, walk faster. But we kind of want to make it a, a challenge to try to run the whole thing. And so we have a reward system. We have two medals that you can get. You can get a medal where if you walk, you get a blue ribbon. So if you walk a section of the race, you have to get a blue ribbon. Or if you run the whole thing, you get a red ribbon. And the reason we did that was the first year we did the epic race, what happened was everyone took off on the run. And the very first, pretty much, it, you're running up this crazy steep hill. And what happened was the first person in front of everyone else started walking. And instantly, everyone behind them started walking. Instantly, just because one person kind of gave up on the hard challenge, it had this flow-on effect of influencing those people around them to walk as well. So at the end of the first year, I think we maybe had 50 runners doing the run, Only one person ran the whole thing. And ultimately, I wanted to challenge these people to to push harder at that moment and not let those around them influence them from maybe going harder than what they could do themselves. So at the end of the first year, when we did the second year, I thought, well, let's do a metal system that rewards those who run the whole thing. And to let the people know that that is the goal, we want you to see if you can run this whole crazy event. And the second year we did it, we went from only even one person to run the whole thing to I think it was ninety percent of them ran the whole thing. So I think second you hear like 60 or 70 runners and only ten people walked sections of it. And it was really it was a really powerful tool to get people to the highest levels. The thing about this epic event is it's one of these defining events that allows people to prove to themselves their character. And that's what I saw where these people were coming up to the finish line. I saw these people having something in their life that reconfirms and reinforces and and allows them to see themselves in a light that maybe they hadn't seen themselves in before. And the power of that moment is massive. The power of that moment where you've overcome something so, so hard that, that even though you've prepared in ways, you know, prepared with discipline and hard work, you still don't know if you're going to be able to do it. And then to see that moment when you know you're going to do it, when you're there, and to see the emotion and and the reward and and, and just just to watch people's faces is is such a powerful thing. And to me, that's always one of the greatest values of exercise is to have these tests in our lives that that are these confirmations and and these um, discovery of higher self. And I know for myself, to be honest, in my own exercise journey in this last period, I've always had, just kind of the last period of my life has been a very injury-prone period. And, and while i exercise consistently in my life, I, I haven't had that. And I know I missed that. And I know it's something I'm going to seek in this next period of my time because I'm inspired by the people I watched yesterday. But as you think about yourself and your exercise, when was the last time you had that thing that that challenged you and made you doubt but, but also allowed you to create a sense of self that was higher, reconfirmed great qualities in yourself and allowed you to move forward in your life knowing that you are a person who can overcome that next level of adversity. To me, there's real power in that. It's, to me, there's real power in that. And if you haven't had that in a while, maybe it's time you seek that out. Just just something really, really cool to think about because I tell you what, you know, we think about what are the greatest highs in life and I can guarantee that for the majority of people crossing that line yesterday, When they look back on 2015 that moment will probably be the highlight of the year and that's pretty powerful stuff before i put the interview on with alan i'm going to uh just talk about the patrons if you want to become a patron of the show It really does help me do this work, and obviously recently you've seen that I've been more consistent in getting the show out there, and this is because of the patrons that are there supporting the show. I just want to name a few of people who are, and we've already got these people who have become patrons for a while now. We've got Paula Powerful, and uh, the nickname for Paula was The Punisher. We've got Marianne Clatt and that's The Momentum. We've got George Baker, and that's The Wild Bill. And then we've also got Mary Power, and I've got the, because I've got the power. Also, Dave, Ginger Dave. He's the governor. So these people have been patrons of the show for a while. And also this month, or well, in the last couple of weeks, Rebecca Spears has become a patron of the show. And I thought Spears, what's a good nickname for Rebecca Spears? And obviously, what are you going to think of with a name like that? You're going to think of Spear. And I thought I thought of someone, you know, like a, a warrior grabbing a spear and throwing it at a target. And so she, I've called her Rebecca Bullseye Spears. Yeah, Rebecca, you always nail the target. ha <laughs> ha. uh, Obviously I enjoy Rebecca's Rebecca's nickname If you want to become a patron of the show, guys, it really, does, it really does, makes a massive difference, and it, like seriously, it really does. And if it continues on, as i was saying, I really want to get this to become a weekly show. And if I can get that financial commitment from you guys, the audience, that just you know, that it would become a reality real soon. So far, I have 22 people, which I really, really appreciate these people becoming, you know, doing this. Uh, based on the numbers I have on the show, it's less than a percent of the people who you know do actually listen to the show. So if you are, oh, the way I think of it, if you if you buy a book year and you think the quality of content that i deliver to you every year is worth more than a book you know maybe you could just chuck my my way with the patronage so check that out go to bevanjamesis.com and you can become a patron of fitness behavior as well anyway i'm going to put my interview on with alan right now i really enjoyed this interview I, i hope you guys do too Okay team, well I'm very pleased to have on the show today a a man by the name of Alan Levinovitz and I've asked him how to say that a thousand times before I started the interview. Um, He is the author of the book called The Gluten Lie and it's a very, very interesting book which I um, highly recommend everyone gets hold of and has either read or listened to because it's, um, it's it's a very interesting subject.
1: So first of all, welcome along to the show Alan, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah, well, it's really good to have you. So I suppose, first of all, can you tell me a little bit of your background? Because I know there's some people, there's been a little bit of criticism around your background, maybe not necessarily the right fit for uh, uh, writing a book like this. But uh, in some ways, actually, I think it's a real strength to writing a book like this. But maybe can you tell us where you come from historically with your academic career?
1: Sure. So I, as an undergraduate, uh, I, I was a philosophy and religion major at Stanford, and then I got my PhD in religion and literature at the University of Chicago. And so what I see myself as, as specializing in academically is is the way in which people make arguments. What kinds of Proofs do they use? Do they tell stories? Do they give anecdotes? Do they use data? Do they issue commandments? And so I've looked at this primarily in the context of religion. And what I started to notice, as I'm sure many of your listeners have noticed, is that much of the way in which people talk about diet and nutrition today, in supposedly secular, non religious ways, actually resembles the way in which religions have talked about food and diet and so that's the way I came into this conversation
0: so I, before we kind of get into the, the book what drew you towards that type of study what drew me towards what your, your original study what drew you towards the religious study yeah.
1: and uh, so I was I I started when I first started college I was interested in bioethics and and then I realized that what what really fascinated me were the ways in which people made arguments so people would tell a story in order to make a point about what was ethical or what wasn't ethical. Mm -hmm. And the best stories, honestly, were in religious traditions. And so I I ended up getting really interested in, you know, stories like Adam and Eve or, you know, parables. And, you know, people are familiar with parables from the Christian Bible. And then also, you know, my own area of specialty, Chinese religion. There's all sorts of fascinating ways in which these philosophical and religious traditions have tried to make the case for the various truths that they believe in
0: so basically religion has been so good at spreading influence what would have been the methods that have helped them to spread that influence
1: that's exactly right and then also seeing how those methods appear in in the least likely places
0: so so then uh you're saying that it kind of led towards you finding this in nutrition so how did, how did that kind of start to pop up for you
1: Well, you know, I had this, I lived in China for two years and I remember this was in, let's see, I want to say 2003, 2004. And I I had a, a bunch of expats there who didn't speak Chinese who were very sensitive to MSG. And that's what they would tell me. They would ask me to have people remove the MSG when we were eating out at Chinese restaurants. And for a long time, that's what I did. I asked them in Chinese to do that. And then once the waiter told me, he said that we can't do that. Uh, there's already MSG in everything. The, the salad, the peanuts that, that your friends are eating right now already have MSG in them. And I was sort of shocked to hear that. And I said, well, they've been removing it at other restaurants. And he said, no, they haven't. They've just <laughs> been telling you that. They've just been telling you that. And I was like, well, that's funny. So, so from then on, I, I did a sort of bad thing. Is I, I, did, I did not actually tell people to remove the MSG. Um, and lo and behold, no one, no one got headaches. And so I did, a, I did a little research on the history of MSG, and MSG sensitivity. And I found that, that the scientific consensus was that in the vast majority of cases, uh, MSG doesn't produce a reaction in placebo-controlled trials. And, and that was really fascinating to me. And I sort of filed that away in the back of my mind. And then, you know, fast forward seven years, and I, and I saw the debate about gluten had a lot in common with the debates about about MSG and its healthfulness, and I thought, well, this maybe something I, I, I should I should look into a little bit more. And and from there, the book project just took off.
0: Now, and opening the door to this project, you know, it's it's really interesting if you look at your Amazon views, it's, it's very much top end and bottom end isn't. This it? kind of, and I think it really shows the example of what you're showing in your book. You know, there's people who kind of understand what you're trying to get across, and then there's people who are kind of just disregarding you because you are going against some of the trends of some of the methods that are you exposed in your book. How did you, did you know you were going to be facing this kind of anti against what you were putting out there uh, and going into the experience? You know, I should, I should have
1: (laughs) Since, (laughs) since, since the, since the thesis of the book is that dietary beliefs are like religion for many people. I should have understood that pushing back against that would cause a backlash. What I didn't expect was for people to not respond to what I said. So so one of the things that really frustrated me is people, you know, I'll hear people saying things like, well, what's he saying? Is he saying that we should just drink a, a liter of Coke every day and, you know, wash down our Twinkies with that? Uh, is he saying that no one has celiac disease? Is he saying, you know, so mm-hmm. I get this, I, there's this sort of, this, the response that I didn't expect was people essentially implying that if you're not super restrictive and if you don't believe in clean eating or whatever, you know, current dietary fad people are into, if you don't believe in those things, then you must be just some kind of crazy who sits in front of the TV and eats processed foods all day. And of course that's not true, but dealing with people who think that there's only those two alternatives, right? You're either mm. hardcore paleo or, you know, you're dying of obesity. Yeah. That's that was a little weird to me.
0: Uh, So one thing, one thing we definitely noticed in the last period of time is that people have definitely. It's almost like their diet is their identity, and in some ways, it's the dangerous thing. Where, um, you know, what I eat represents who I am as a person, and uh, so for someone like you to bring a book out that would maybe, you know, contradict or, or differ in their opinion, it's almost like they have to put the gloves on against you to fight against you, don't they?
1: Yeah, absolutely, and that's something, you know, I, one of the funny things I discovered while researching the book is that there's a lot of food-based insults, so people have always <laughs> used what they eat, you know, so like a shit eater, or a frog eater, or a pump, pumpkin eater, sweet potato eater, you know, we, we have always differentiated ourselves from other people, in part by saying, well, what they eat is disgusting, and what we eat is, is not, it's clean and pure.
0: <laughs> so, um, I suppose, so, so some questions to where to start, so first of all, one of the things you're really trying to get across with this book is that the use of maybe incomplete science or bad science to promote maybe not true facts. Is that a fair comment?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So, can you maybe give me some more detail of what you're thinking here? Mm-hmm.
1: Sure. Well, let's start with. I mean, I'll start with gluten, which is a really good example. Um, I, I, I've spoken with uh, with a really prominent researcher at Monash University, Peter Peter Gibson, and I've read work by one of the world's leading gluten sensitivity researchers, Dr. Alessio Fasano. And what's interesting about both of these men is that they get cited in in hugely popular books like Wheat Belly and Grain Brain. And I I was shocked, quite frankly, to find that. These men themselves don't agree with the conclusions of books like Grain, Brain, and Wheat Belly. So, what I found was that when you actually went to the scientists and the researchers, the ones who were really doing the work and, and, and figuring out these very difficult nutrition questions, they aren't making promises of miraculous healing. They aren't saying that we figured out that gluten is this huge villain that everyone ought to eliminate from their diets. And I, one of the things I want to get out there with this book is, is to get people thinking critically about the sources of their information. Who are we listening to and, and why is the story that they're telling so convincing and appealing to us?
0: But it's almost the battle for the everyday person, isn't it? Because, um, you know, like a lot of lot of what we see out there and what's reported, I actually watched a very interesting documentary a few weeks ago and they're talking about how easy it is to get bad science reported in mainstream media. And this guy actually deliberately created a bad science piece and, and he managed to get it all out there all around the world in the media. And uh, And it's one of the problems that Joe Public like, you know, who maybe don't have the time and the resource to kind of commit to high level research. Like how, how are we meant to actually
1: see that? Yeah, that's, you know, so this is, again, you, you asked me about my background. One of the things that I think I can help people with is, is figuring out what kinds of rhetoric or ways of talking to trust okay, and great. what kinds of, what kinds of words or alarm bells. So when you see the word miracle, That's That's a big alarm bell. If someone says, you know, I've seen miraculous changes in my patients, or I've seen miraculous changes in the people that I work with, you want to think to yourself, hmm, this person sounds like they're trying to sell me something that's too good to be true. Or if you hear someone talking about how conventional wisdom Mm -hmm. has it all wrong, and they're the, you know, no one believed Einstein. You know, anytime someone's comparing themselves with a misunderstood genius or anytime someone's saying, you know, everyone, all of conventional wisdom is wrong and they're the ones that are going to show you the truth, those are alarm bells because in reality – the the people that they're actually citing. So when you read these people are like, oh, I've got this miraculous diet, or oh, I figured out what conventional wisdom doesn't understand, well, they're citing studies that are produced by, you guessed it, conventional wisdom researchers <laughs> at universities, you know, so they're they're simultaneously calling out you know these institutions of science and mainstream medicine as as fraudulent, but they're also, you know, in the, in the same breath, citing them as authorities. On on whatever it is that they want to sell you, so those are the so those are the, some of the warning signs to look out for.
0: You, you talk about some of the memes that get repeated: a good versus evil, natural versus man made. Um, you know, what are some of the things that we we should be seeing? Uh, you know, more of detailed of those kind of those level of things. You know, the the magical kind of stuff you talk about.
1: Yeah, those are the those are some more uh, those are some more warning signs. I'm really I'm really glad you brought those up. So when people talk about Clean or unclean, or pure and impure—those are words, you know. As a religious studies scholar, that that don't belong in science. You won't hear actual scientists saying, "So we measured the, you know, how how morally good this food was, and, and against this this food that has is impure and unclean." Right? Those are those are words that have been imported from. From philosophy and religion, and they don't belong in in discussions of nutrition. Similarly, there's this myth that I talk about in the book, the the myth of paradise past. And this mm. is most, you know, everyone's familiar with this. Adam and Eve, there was a paradise back in the day when everything was great, right? We have, you know, the expression, the good old days. Yeah. Well. The, the good old days, yeah, some things were good in the good old days, but some things weren't so good. And when you hear people trying to sell you a story of a past in which everything was clean and pure and no one needed medicine because they were all eating you know, raw sweet potatoes from the ground, that's, that is a moment at which you ought to be suspicious. We can't know whether something is good or bad for you based on whether it's from the past or whether it's from modernity. The truth is that nutrition is more complicated than that.
0: Mm. You also talk about um, the evils, you know, like the big corporates, you know, they're all trying to, to make a profit and hurt our health. And, and you know, that, that it's that's hard not to look at, you know, like look what Coca-Cola brought out the other day, this whole idea of that it's, it's the movement, it's not the food. Um, you, know, it's, yes. you know, it's easy to kind of look at that and argue that actually a corporate is just looking at us at a dollar factor and uh, trying to who cares about our health
1: you're you're absolutely right and and I, I am super suspicious and i talk about this in the book again i'm i'm very suspicious of corporate conflicts of interest that's a, that's something these companies they want to sell us as much hyper palatable food as humanly possible but you know what there's also companies that want to sell us organic food and they're funding people to talk about the evils of gmos and to fund studies that show how great organic food is for you and then of course there's also people who want to sell you their their blog posts, uh, you know, which are hooked up with, with advertisements, like mm-hmm. the Food Babe, for example, or people that have a diet that they want to sell you. And when these diet books are selling millions and millions of copies, you got people like, I think it's Pete Evans in, yeah, in Australia. You know, it's it's there's always conflicts of interest everywhere you look. And so I'm not saying don't be suspicious of corporations. I'm saying use your critical thinking skills to take a deep breath and realize that sometimes there's conflicts of interest where we're not expecting to find them. It's not just the corporations. It's also people who want to sell you miracle cures or prove that they, they have countercultural wisdom, right? So it's, it's equal opportunity skepticism. And I think sometimes people forget about that and they got caught up in these narratives of evil corporations fighting against good holistic doctors or good holistic nutritionists. Whereas the truth is it's, it's really more complicated than that.
0: You aren't afraid to name names in the book, which I kind of respect in some ways, because you do you you kind of point the finger at some people who you think are very bad examples of, um, you know, everything that you're talking about in this book uh, and using it to their advantage.
1: Uh, were you fearful of doing that? You know, I should have been. <laughs> I, 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 again, you know, you asked me, was I expecting the backlash? Yeah. If if diet is like religion then these people who have put out these massive bestsellers, they are like saints. Mm. They are like demigods. And so when I attack these people, even if I show very good evidence that they've been fraudulent, so if I can find, for example, that one of them ran a study and the, that showed that he was wrong but never reported on it or something like that, yeah. people just don't want to see that. They don't want to believe it because they don't want to have their saints shown shown to have feet of clay and and so i now in retrospect i realize i should have been gentler because it alienates people to see that the people they revere actually might not be all that they're cracked up to be at the same time it's important to expose these 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 bad these bad scientists or these people who get ahead of the science for who they are that the, the public really needs to know what's actually going on and what they're being fed so to speak
0: I suppose, you know, if if, if, if someone's listening to this right now, you know, obviously the goal of your work is to expose people to, you know, these techniques that help us realize that we need to be a bit more of a skeptic and we maybe have to, you know, have a bit more of an open mind to maybe there's not so much truth to what's being told to us or at least explore it to a higher level. Um, When you think about that for the everyday person, but then they get kind of caught up in this whole idea of that I am this thing as well. How do they, how do you think it's easy for someone to let go of that?
1: One of the things I think is important for people to realize is that they're, you know, you, they're going to have to do what's best for themselves. so if you found a dietary lifestyle that's good for you, more power to you, you should keep that up. But what I found. Exploring this community, the wellness community, is there are a lot of people for whom it has become pathological mm-hmm. where they can 't go to a family dinner because they 're afraid that the food is not going to be food that they can eat or that they're terrified that their kid's going to go to a party and have a cupcake with artificial flavoring or sugar in it and 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 I would say if you are a person who is is starting to question whether your devotion to your diet or your lifestyle is really actually making you happier. Maybe you're not getting quite as much out of it as you want for those people. I would say, Hey, you know, pick up my book and, and start to look at the foundations of the commandments that you've been given. Start to look at the people who are giving you these dietary commandments. Start to look at the history of the way that we've come to fear certain foods and the way in which that history is often not based on science. And I think just seeing that, you know, the Wizard of Oz pulling back the curtain, right, is really helpful when you're trying to overcome, you know, excessively dogmatic attitudes towards, towards food and towards your own wellness.
0: This is a challenge, but isn't it? Because if we think about it, like I was funny, I was talking to a guy a, a while ago, and he actually went to one of Pete Evans' paleo conferences, and uh, and he was quite funny because he said he actually said it was like a religious cult. He said it was crazy, <laughs> uh, you know, all these people were in this religious cult, and the, but then he said the funny thing was, you know, like what Pete was saying was all, you know, put your hands up if it's worked, and everyone put their hands up, and um, and then. And he goes to me and later on in the conversation, but I've, I've kind of started doing paleo and I've lost, you know, a crap load of weight and all the rest of it. And uh, But then in the same context, he's kind of saying to me, well, you know, I've, I've stopped eating junk food, which I had a lot. I've stopped eating sweets, which I had a lot. I had too much alcohol, which I reduced. So it was kind of obvious to me that, well, you've just created behavior changes that if anyone had got you to do that, you would have created results that you desired. Um, but at the same time, now that you have this context that you've labeled it with paleo, it 's when i 've had proof that showed me i 've been successful with this it 's kind of easy to see why people do become these kind of you know preachers of the gospel
1: that's yeah, uh, no i couldn't agree more in fact, when, one of the m- one of my favorite lines from an interview with uh, with a researcher this was Peter Gibson at Monash University said you know people come to me they, they say i 'm feeling better because I 've eliminated gluten, but then they tell me what they 've done, and I could point to about a million things they're doing better. so rarely do people just you know go from eating a very very healthy balanced home cooked diet to eliminate it to, to going paleo usually that that comes in the context of a kind of health crisis or realizing that they just have been eating totally lousy food usually it comes accompanied with exercise and fitness yeah, yeah. And, and of course the eat a balanced diet and don't eat as much processed foods is, is not going to sell a lot of diet books. It's sexy, and it does, it? yeah. No, it's not sexy. And, and you know what? I think that there's a lot of people who, in order to make good on dietary changes, maybe they need to be scared, right? So there's a lot of people for whom just trying to lose weight or just trying to be fit isn't enough. But if someone says, hey, you're going to prevent dementia or you're going to be able to clear up your skin or your, you know whatever promises mm. they're making, maybe that's, that's something that people need to motivate them. At the same time, we have to ask ourselves, do we really want fictional stories or do we really want bad science to be motivating people's health, uh, health changes? And I think the answer is no. I think we want people to understand exactly what's going on. If what's happening is that people who go paleo are just cutting, cutting junk food out of their diet, eating less and exercising more... Let's, let's call a spade a spade. And I think that's really, really important, especially because there are people out there who are actually sensitive to gluten. There are people out there who actually have celiac. There's people who have non-celiac gluten sensitivity. There are people who are sensitive to FODMAPs, uh, which is a kind of short-chain carbohydrate. Uh, and so it's important for those people to, to know the truth about their own. Dietary problems. And with all of the kind of hyperbole floating around, it's it's hard for everyone, myself included, to sort fact from fiction.
0: Well, and, and I think you, in your book you do kind of address the big ones. Obviously, MSG, which um, you know, if you gain the research, and then you got your gluten, which you know, in your book you do state that there there is an aspect of our community that has this problem of gluten and um and it's real and they need to address it, but then there's a lot of people who are kind of think they are in fact they're not um but also you you know the big one right now is sugar isn't it sugar is the enemy of everything um and it's the cause of you know it's a toxin and it's this you know this yeah. you know and and as you say in the book well we've eaten fruit for years you know why why wouldn't fruit be the end of the world for us so you know you you do you are willing to kind of confront some of those bigger areas aren't you
1: yeah and the sugar thing too you know i uh, there is no question that people, in general, uh, is, is you know, especially in the in the first world, drink far too many sugar sweetened beverages. Yeah. That's that's absolutely the case. People are getting too many of their calories from sugar, and they're not you know, fruit. It's it's harder to get lots of calories from an apple than it is from a soda or a slice of cake mm-hmm. or what have you. So uh, there's there's no argument from me that that sugar is hyper palatable and that people are consuming too much of it. At yeah. the same time. I talk to people who wouldn't go on the record saying things like, well, the researchers want to get sodas out of the schools, and they know that the best way to do that is scare parents. And the best way to scare parents is to compare soda to drugs. And to me... Yeah. You know, they'll say, well, maybe the addiction research isn't quite there yet. Or maybe we know that, you know, maybe we know that soda isn't exactly like cocaine, but that's sure a great analogy to scare people away from soda. And on the one hand, I understand that. Yes, too much consumption of soda is a problem. On the other hand, the last thing you want to do is, is play fast and loose with the science because 20 years down the line, when, when people find out that that's what was happening, they're going to trust scientists even less. And, and that's really bad.
0: Well, the other thing we see is, you know, when we look at most diets, is a lot of elimination diets, where, you know, it's get rid of this aspect of the diet because that's the problem. Um, eventually, it comes back to bite people in the bum. Because while we might necessarily have a good period of weight loss, or we might achieve some health goals in the first period, eventually we give into the elimination, don't we? And we kind of go the other way, don't we?
1: Uh, yeah. You know, this whole 30, it's funny coming into the space, which, you know, obviously all the people that I talk with yourself, uh, people in the wellness community are very familiar. I didn't know about any of this stuff. So I found out about the whole 30 when I was researching this book and people treat it like some kind of religious ritual. I did another whole 30. I keep doing whole thirties, right? It's, it's as if they're in this cyclical binge and purge cycle where they, they go on some kind of draconian diet. Then they go off of it. They feel dirty and guilty because they've been cheating, right? It's like, I say, you know, I say to people now, you can't cheat on your diet. Your diet is not a human. You know, it's it's you, you shouldn't feel th- this this depth of connection, uh, almost religious connection with the food that you eat. And I think it's unhealthy to be going through these cycles of well, I'm going to go on another cleanse. You should be able to live your life comfortably with habits that are sustainable and comfortable for you without feeling like you're cheating and then you're clean and then you're cheating and then you're clean. You know, I I'm 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 fit and I'm healthy and I love my food and and part of the message I want to preach, if you 'll excuse the term, is that you can be healthy and you can have a sustainable life and not have any foods that are taboo. you know you don't have to live with taboos in order to live well well, it's funny, you
0: talk about the kind of puritan and values of it you know like that this must be if it's pleasurable, it must be bad yeah
1: yeah you know like- i think I think people believe that I think people think that if something tastes good. If, it must be bad. And if the masses enjoy it, it must be really bad. Right? And there's some truth to that because things that are pleasurable are more easily abused. And you know, that's the same thing for people who get pleasure out of exercise. You have exercise addicts. You, know? you, have, you, you can become addicted to anything pleasurable, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean then we, we know that the best way to create a, a binge eating disorder is through making some, prohibiting something. right? The forbidden fruit is not a great way of getting yourself to not eat fruit.
0: Mm, it's interesting, isn't it?
1: A um, psychologist told me that all the time, that, that if you really want to cut down on something, if you want to have healthy eating, don't, you know, for the love of God, don't forbid it. That's just going to make you want it even more. <laughs>
0: uh, one thing you, um, one thing you talk about in the book, well, 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 there's few, so many things you talk about in the book, but one thing, uh, that you talk about is this whole idea of, um, fiction, this, this, uh, the, Demons of food. Uh, where am I trying to go off this I suppose is um, actually I'm gonna go move forward with that question, I'm kinda a of question. One of the best chapters in the book, although it's a brilliant book overall, is the chapters where you do the the, the kind of unpacked diet. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. That that was one of the most fun and actually most dangerous parts of the book um, was I wanted to take all of the rhetorical techniques that I'd told readers about, the myth of paradise past, the idea that foods are good and bad, the idea that there's a simple miraculous solution waiting for all of your health ills and turn it into my own fad diet. And so I I thought one thing that's very modern that people are scared of is packaging and plastics. And so what I did is I did what all the authors of these fad diet books do. I went into I went into the scientific literature. I cherry-picked all of the studies about packaging that showed that packaging is dangerous. I overstated the results of those studies. And I came up with a diet that showed that you could cure all of your illnesses and lose tons of weight by eating whatever you wanted, as long as it had never been in contact with plastic or aluminum foil, essentially. And what was weird about this, my wife actually helped me a lot. She, she, she came up with all the research and, and outlined the diet. And by the time we were done, we were terrified of plastic. <laughs> so you, you know,
0: created it on yourself.
1: <laughs> yeah, we, we were scared. We were like, should we really be saran wrapping this? Should we really be putting this in the into the Ziploc bag? And we had invented it. It was BS that we had come up with. But this kind of rhetoric is so powerful that that we actually bought into it. And so I, I really wanted people – it's sort of a test, right? At the end of the book, it's like, well, now you know how this stuff works. Cut your teeth on this diet and see and see if it still has power over you and, and – and, and it has it still has power over me. And I'm the one who came up with it. The
0: <laughs> irony of it is, is that I actually listened to the audiobook. And in the audiobook, unfortunately, your, your publisher hasn't put the, the next chapter in there. <laughs> and so I'm listening to it. And and because you kind of you do your section where you talk about what you believe is a better approach to having life. Um, and then you kind of have this unpacked picture, And I'm listening to it. I'm thinking, surely this is a joke. But at the same time, <laughs> as you're doing it, I'm thinking. Is it? You know, because it's so convincing, and, and even as I knew as the cynic in me was listening to it, I'm like, no, this is this is crap. I'm thinking, but it's a pretty good argument. And then <laughs> and then in the audiobook book, you don't have you've missed the chapter where it tells you what you've done, and so then it just ends. And I'm thinking, back it up. Is that, is that what's happened here? And uh, and so yeah, so then the next chapter you actually do break it down and show the tricks you've used. Have you?
1: Yeah, that's actually, that's, that's right. I've actually gotten emails from people who have listened to the audiobook who, and this is scares me, right? Because they've read the whole book. So yeah. they know that I'm doing exactly the opposite of what I've said that you should do through the whole book. And they're emailing me and they're saying, I love the book and I love the unpacked diet. Can you tell me where I can find the, you know, the coffee filters so, so that they you actually, recommend? They actually believed that, it. Wow. Yes. Yes. But, but and,
0: in fairness to them, like I knew, like while I'm listening to it, I'm thinking, no, this is, I, I, I was just like weird but then even as I was a cynic and I knew it was kind of deep down, I knew it wasn't right. It was so convincing. It really was. And you did well, start to
1: think to yourself, well, maybe there is some truth to this. It's incredibly convincing. And this is one of the things that people need to realize. You know, when you say it, you go to that paleo conference and there's all these people raising their hands. You know, you go to the vegan conference where the people are going to be very opposed to much of what the paleo conference yeah, is saying and, and they're going to all raise their hands and yeah. you look at the testimonials on amazon for every diet book and yeah, they're they work, all they? they all work everything yeah. works you know yeah. and are, are there some diets that work for people better than others of, of course there are but but the truth is there have been people testifying to faith healing right for a time memorial, there were these giant revivals where people were cured of everything and and Yes, there's a, there's a grain of truth to some of these diets. Low-carb, for example, seems to work better than other diets in the short term for inducing weight loss. Unfortunately, for most people, I, I don't think a disordered relationship with carbohydrates is particularly appealing as, as a kind of lifelong dietary practice. I myself prefer not to have to be afraid of carbohydrates. And if if you've undertaken a low-carb diet in order to lose weight, well, you become invested in that and you become attached to it. And you also become scared that if you go off it, you're going to get Gain weight or become unhealthy. And, yeah. and that's really dangerous. I mean, something I wish I'd mentioned in the book that, that I talk about more now is that a restrictive diet is a medical intervention, period. End of story. And that's how they should be viewed. If you are undertaking a restrictive diet, understand that there are potential side effects. Understand that as a long-term proposition, it's going to be difficult, that there are emotional consequences to restricting your diet when it comes to socializing with people, when it comes to seeing your family or going to holidays. And so we, we ought to not just say, hey, try it out, right? No one says, hey, try out this pharmaceutical just to see if it works, right? I mean, restrictive diets are are, are big important things that have a, an effect on our mind and body and we, and we need to approach them like any medical intervention with caution
0: I, I think another aspect to add to that is that there's the, um, the identity crisis as well because if you're on a restrictive diet what we seem to find is that we all have moments of weakness and we'll you know, let's say you eat some chocolate or if you're on a low carb you have carbs then it's I'm a failure so people put this emotional attachment to their character which then can have a flow on effect to other areas of life which can be really damaging
1: Absolutely. It's, it's, it's really bad when you're, when you're constantly judging yourself in that way. And then what you do is you, is you try to make, you, you, you essentially confess, right? But for a diet, it's like, you say, well, I I cheated on it. I look up cheat and diet online. And these scary sites come up. They're like, don't beat yourself up. But, but at the same time, what they're really saying is beat yourself up. You did something really bad. You know, they're like, it's not the end of the world. All you have to do is make sure that you purify yourself for the next two months. And I'm yeah. thinking, well, that's gotta be, it's like, it's like an abusive relationship. Relationship, You know, yeah. where you become dependent on the people that are telling you that you are guilty and bad.
0: Well, it's interesting. I've got a client who I worked with a while ago, and, and she was in a situation where uh, she was always doing extreme restrictive diets and always failing because they were just no one could achieve them in the long term. And uh, and so what would happen was then she would emotionally beat herself up, and then she'd go to really destructive bad eating. So she'd overeat, um, and, and so she was always losing the battle. That made her feel that she was just a failure at life. No, not just bad at eating and, and the weight thing. That she saw herself and her self perception of herself was this: I am just someone who who can never never achieve anything. And it was just a real. It was actually really really damaging. And one thing we worked on her was just extreme diets don't work. You just get, get a healthy habit happening. And and we got it to a place where she started to her self perception shifted to a much healthier place. But it's purely through actually removing all those kind of crazy kind of trying to achieve this outcome and actually making it feel successful through healthy eating.
1: Yeah, that's I'm glad you brought that up, Evan, because that was something when I got into this, what I was really looking at was history and science. That's what I was interested in. But I started running into all these tragic stories like the one that you're telling of, of people who, who became disordered eaters when they didn't have to and in the process sort of developed this disordered relationship with themselves. And again, you know, sometimes these restrictive diets work for people. You know, there are people that are happy being Puritans and never dancing. And, yeah. you know, yeah. you know there, there are people for whom severe lifestyles work. But for the vast majority of us who live with and have family who aren't a part of these ways of life, it's very, very difficult to maintain that. And, and it's very, very difficult to keep up that identity. It can be painful. So it's, you know, again, be very, very cautious. And that's not to say, of course, and I know you, I'm sure you agree with me and my list, your listeners agree as well, is that you can definitely eat more healthfully. You can make changes in your life that will be sustainable over the long term. It's not to say that we should just do whatever we want, eat whatever we want, yeah. not exercise. But there's a big difference between that and believing in these myths, and believing, making food into this good, evil, pure, impure world—that—that that I think is is taking it a bit too far.
0: A lot of people are going to say, "Okay, well, obviously, you know what you're saying is interesting, and I'm sure some people probably still disagree with you." But you know, what would be the, you know, because at the same time, obesity is a massive problem, and uh, you know, we look at the statistics and the. the You know, Far Out Man, I was watching a documentary about American obesity the other day, and it's just scary. Um, So what are are your thoughts on how, as a society and as a community and as individuals, can we have a healthier relationship with food so we can actually be a healthier being?
1: I, so, I, I actually, I, as a, you know, a disclaimer, he's a, he's a friend of mine as well, but there's this book called The Dorito Effect that just came out by a guy named Mark Schatzker. And Schatzker's argument is that the real problem is that we don't understand flavor, that that what we really need to do is cultivate palates where we want to eat healthfully. And where we're not eating healthfully to eat healthfully, we're eating healthfully because that's what tastes good to us. Okay. So, for me personally... I don't crave I don't crave a Big Mac, I don't crave soda simply because my culinary culture, what I do, the way I cook the foods I enjoy and and how I was raised thankfully by my parents is is home cooked home cooked delicious meals. You know that's that's what I like and and my parents never once gave a thought to being healthy. In the same way that you know whether it's the Japanese that you idolize or the Mediterranean diet or whoever it is that you're idolizing these diets didn't come about because they were trying to be healthy. They came about because they were trying to develop a a culinary culture uh, based on seasonal foods, foods that taste delicious, good cooking practices. And so I think that what we really need to do is, is start making food a centerpiece of our culture again, not something that we need to get done quickly, not a means to an end, whether that end is health or pleasure, um, you know, like just getting your sugar buzz or whatever, but making it a really important part of our culture. And I think if we do that, we'll be able to fight, you know, the obesity epidemic, but also the the fact that even people who are not overweight are still very unhealthy because they're sedentary and eating crap foods all the time. We'll be able to fight that in a way that, you know, like a diet is sustainable over the long term. We can only twist society's arm So much. But eventually, you know, if we want to have a sustainable solution to these problems, we need to change the way in which we think about food and culinary culture.
0: And and in your book, you talk about, um, you know, some of the some of the tips you do give is is this whole idea of have dinner at the table. Take your time. Don't rush your food. You know, those types of um, enjoying the experience of food.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that if you if you enjoy if you enjoy the experience of food, you'll find that you you eat less (laughs) and you eat you eat better. Absolutely. So I I recommend in the book this I say eating in the fourth dimension, which is don't eat during time you've set aside for something else. Set aside time to eat. Mm -hmm. And I found that you actually consume less food because you're not eating mindlessly you're not eating while you're doing other activities and so you know I'm not saying you know make this a way of life but but try as best you can to to prioritize food as food to sort of be grateful for your food and know where it comes from and be you know either have cooked it yourself or you know sometimes you don't have time to cook it yourself but then realize that that you don't have time to cook it yourself and still try to savor whatever it is that you're eating. I think that's really really important and I wish more people started thinking about wellness and health Holistically, And when I say that, it's funny, a lot of your listeners will be like, but that's exactly, I go to a holistic doctor and they told yeah. me to get on paleo or whatever. But holistic means mental and physical health. And I think if you're constantly worrying about what oh. your food is going to do to your health, you're not really mentally and physically healthy. A holistic approach to your life means understanding that food isn't just about, you know, helping you lose weight or helping you biohack yourself to optimize your mind. It's, it's a part of a much larger beautiful culinary tradition it's about what you ate with your parents growing up it's about sharing celebratory meals with your children and and so on and so i think that's a part of food that we need to bring front and center instead of relegating it to the sidelines
0: yeah it's fascinating stuff um for the people listening to this today um because i'm sure you know we've got a lot of people's ears kind of perking um what would be your message that you want to, to take home from kind of
1: your work I want people to know that they don't need to be afraid of their food and they also shouldn't expect too much from their food. That's the religious side of food. The Taoist monks that I study, the story of Adam and Eve, they all make food about salvation and damnation. You're living in the Garden of Eden, then you eat the apple that was, or the fruit that was advertised by the snake, and boom, you're in pain and you're dying and you're <laughs> suffering. You've got to do agriculture, yeah. you know? And what I would say is break free of that. When you, when you reduce the power of food, you will reduce the power of food over you. And, and that's a really important message to keep in mind. If you're someone that struggles with food, don't make food into this giant enemy because then it really will be this giant enemy. Try to make sustainable changes to your diet. Don't believe people that are telling you that, that there's a miraculous diet that can save you. But if you don't follow it, you'll die. And I think that will improve your health, mental and physical when it comes to food and nutrition.
0: Um, and, and obviously by using tools like your book, you can start to understand how you've been maybe manipulated to think things that actually may be damaging for you in the long term.
1: Yeah. That's what I'm hoping for people. And, you know, I, I am of the, you know, people say, well, what about the, you know, everyone told that the government told us that fat was bad and now they're telling us that eggs are good. We can't trust them either. And, And you know what? That's true. There's a lot, it's not just crazy quack doctors who are guilty of this. Nutrition science as a field has oversold itself much in the same way that economics as a field has oversold itself, right? So there's a lot of fancy mathematical equations, but you've got some people saying that you need to raise taxes and you've got other Nobel prize winners saying you need to lower taxes. And that's because the truth is, economics is is not as scientifically sound on its proofs of what taxes you should have or not have as something like physics. And the same is true in nutrition, right? That we don't know as much as we would like to know about nutrition. And so the government, as well as quack doctors, has oversold us its knowledge. And it's time to recognize that and be humble about where we currently are with the science on food and, and where, how we should talk about it.
0: It's funny. Cause you know, I'm, I'm a fitness professional and you know, people look to me for advice and all the rest of it. And, and I'm, I, I actually have a pretty healthy relationship with food and uh, that like I have chocolate every night and um, you know, like I, I drink some Coke occasionally, you know, I, but, but at the same time it's all within healthy levels and all the rest of it. But when people find out that I have like a, I have four pieces of chocolate every night and I love it. And so like, I, <laughs> like, I really love it. And, uh, people like it blows people's mind the way that a, a guy who's meant to be a fitness professional would have chocolate in his life and it's like well why wouldn't I really enjoy my chocolate you know but it's just that healthy kind of perspective with it isn't it
1: yeah no people think that they think to themselves well how could you possibly that that that, that how could you possibly consume these foods that i have put into the bad column i mean soda people would just be shocked you know yeah. to hear that that a fitness professional could consume a soda and, and not you know I don't know keel over and die or yeah, become yeah. a, and a immediately, immediately
0: I do choose the diet option but you know I, I'll have some occasionally and it's like but I, I do have this kind of everything's okay but obviously there's some foods I'm going to stay away from and I might have them just at minimal levels but yeah, you know like yeah it's, it's just it's such a fascinating topic and it's um and I just think that your work's a really important work to be doing, because the more the more understanding we have in life, the clearer we can make better decisions around ourselves. And it seems to be that as time goes on, you know we're making more poor decisions around nutrition, and if we can have a greater understanding, we can because the thing is is where do I put my energy on what I'm working on in myself? And if I'm putting my energy in an area that ultimately ends up hurting me, well, that's not good use of my energy. Whereas, let's say you have got a bad diet right now, and you know it, and, you're, and deep down you know that you're having too much fast food, and you're, you know, you're eating too much sugary food, and and you know, you're drinking too much soda and that. Well, the area should, you should be putting your energy on is reducing that and replacing it with some good healthy habits. Um, if I'm then focusing on all these kind of, kind of, you know, religious, religious dogma around nutrition, and it's actually focusing me somewhere else, I'm kind of wasting that opportunity, aren't I?
1: Uh, you, you couldn't. I, I really couldn't have said it any better. I mean, I, I totally agree, and I think that one of the ironies is that despite the incredible proliferation of nutrition information, it's not doing anything. No. It's clearly not doing anything. The people, the people that should be worrying about this stuff. I probably aren't anymore. Or, you know, for every 300 testimonials you see on Amazon about a book working, there's of course 40,000 people that bought the book, tried the whole 30, dropped out on day two, and yeah. now eat the same way that they did before, but feel slightly guiltier about yeah. it, right? So maybe these things are helping a select minority of people who then evangelize the diets, but clearly it's not working as a sustainable population-wide solution to our bad relationship with, as you put it, fast food. So let's put our energy... Into, into a solution that, that isn't so dogmatic and that actually has the potential to affect change in everyone over a long period of time.
0: Just, just lastly, you do recommend a diet at the end, but it's not so much to do with food. Uh, you, what, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. Well, I want people to detox. And of course, you know, there's, <laughs> yeah, that's a, you do promote a detox. <laughs> I do. I, and, and you know, I, by the end of the book, I think people realize that that's a, that's a joke because I think that detoxes are silly, but I think one thing that a lot of the people who are reading my book might, might benefit from is detoxing from all of this nutrition information. So I know people who told me, I interviewed them that they're addicted to Instagram accounts. They're addicted to their mailing list where they get a new clean recipe every day that they can try. They have to, to read about the latest scientific study that tells you how to treat, you know, arthritis or, you know, whatever whatever it is that the study is saying, you know, maybe that's part of the problem, Hmm. not part of the solution. So the detox I recommend is for a month, just cut yourself off from any nutrition information. Don't read the labels on your food. If you're eating packaged food, don't count your calories. Don't look at your Instagram account, delete the emails from the vegan newsletter that you've subscribed to and see how Detoxing from all of that hype and hyperbole changes your relationship with your food, and I think people will find that 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 it actually makes a big difference in how they think about health and wellness.
0: It's funny you say that because one of my clients is one is kind of the traditional person who kind of. Um... It gets caught up in the culture of certain kind of philosophies around food and, and she's always kind of battling which way she's going And I gave her your book to, to read and, um, and she said oh, the sense of relief when she read about the detox diet Was, was mind-blowing And it's given her a free space in her life And it's um, just really fascinating It was a real true example of what you're talking about there
1: That's really, it makes me really happy to hear that, too, because so often the blowback I hear from people are saying, you know, essentially, why do you have to rain on our parade or why do you, why are you saying that I'm bad or wrong? And so it's, it's nice to, it's nice to hear from people who, who gather that the message of this book is not, hey, everyone out there, you're stupid, but rather, hey, maybe you can lighten up a little bit on yourself. Maybe you can lighten up a little bit with your relationship with food and actually have the same health benefits that you're getting but not feel scared and not, and feel empowered about your relationship with food instead of feeling like you're, you're constantly on the brink of cheating or being dirty.
0: Yeah. Guys, the name of the book is the gluten Lion, And I think one thing, you know, like I'm sure it's funny. I don't, I don't normally do nutrition and big the show. Um, uh, a, I'm not a nutritionist, I'm obviously I'm a fitness professional, I have some level, but I'm not a fully qualified nutritionist, um, and so it's an area I don't necessarily go into, and the, the times I have, it's been really fascinating, the... the you do get a lot of kind of, like, the only negativity feedback I get is when I talk about nutrition, which is really <laughs> interesting. Uh, and um, because, again, people have these kind of very set-in-their-ways way of thinking and anything that contradicts it is is really kind of confronting to them. And I think one thing that as you're listening to today's interview is to to really be aware of your own confirmation bias, you know, to really be aware of what are the things that, that I've set in stone in myself that maybe I need to reflect on and maybe look at them in a different light and maybe understand that maybe there isn't that isn't necessarily 100% true and to learn different meto- methods so that I can become a bit more of a a critical thinker in a way that leads to better decisions in my life. And um, Alan's book is is a really great place to start. It's called The the Gluten Lie. You can get it on Amazon, obviously, anywhere else. You can get it around bookstores and stuff like that, Alan.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You can get it, hopefully, in any, any independent bookstore or in, uh, in bricks-and-mortar bookstores as well. So and, uh, it's, it's available, wherever books are sold. My website is, right now, it's just for the book. It's www.theglutenlie.com. And you can read the introduction to the book for free there, just to get a little bit of a sense of what it's like.
0: And I highly recommend it. And, and as I say, when you get to that last part of the book, and he does the, uh, the what was it, the restrictive diet of the, the no-plastic <laughs> diet, uh, the Unpacked Diet was, uh, when you get to that, it will blow your mind away. It's, it's a brilliant book team. And, um, yeah, if you want to check out his work or if you want to go see Aaron on his website, go to theglutenlie.com and he can, you can point to him and I'm sure we will answer any of your questions. Uh, thanks for your time today, mate. It's been really great talking to you.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Right team, so once again it's Alan Levinovitz. I'm pretty sure the Sarah says his name. Um, it's one of those names that when I read I am not you know, you guys know I'm not that flesh with names anyway. But it was one of those ones where I was I have to ask him his name before I start the interview. Guys, I, I really enjoyed that interview. I think he's got some really great insight. It's really interesting, as I was saying before, if you go to Amazon, you, it's, it's very fascinating. A couple of things happen. First of all, it's all five-star reviews or all one-stars. And it's people, you know, it's very interesting why that's the reason. Um, the second thing that was really fascinating was one of the one-stars I read was one from a person who loved the book. I like would have given it five stars, but didn't understand the last, that the last check was chapter was kind of a satirical chapter and they were uh, quite critical of that and hence gave him a really low rating so check it out Uh, you know if you are someone who thinks he's trying to promote something wrong check out the book you know have a look at it have a look at the way you're thinking because I know for myself I I thought there's lots of value and it's really interesting since reading the book and learning some of this philosophy or some of the perspective he gained how i start to see this in some of the things i see put out there in the fitness world and uh because there's a lot of people out there trying to make a buck maybe not selling the best messages so you know check it out um questions if you want to send me a question you can email me a question at bevanjames i was bevanjames at gmail.com and i got an email here from a guy called tim matheson and uh He's gone back to listening to this from the very beginning of the episode. It's been quite an interesting experience to go back and listen to the beginning of Fitness Behaviour. When did it start? Well, let's have a look here. I started Fitness Behaviour back in 2010. So the show's been going for, actually, do you know what? It's a five-year anniversary today, because I started on the 7th of the 9th in 2010. So it's my mum's birthday. It's my mum's birthday today. And... Uh, Wow, so it's been going for five years, and that time i put out sixty shows. It's gone from being a monthly show to being a fortnightly show. So there you go. But Tim just sent me through an email. He just said it's um, been going through his shows. He's really enjoying getting back into listing them. Um, he's saying he's kind of found his mojo again. He's kind of maybe it seems like he lost his mojo. He said he's watching too much Netflix and he wants more mind food and. He just wanted to know if I have a list of books that I can recommend. Now I've got to be honest; I get asked about what books I love reading all the time, and I'm thinking maybe what I could do because I do tend to consume a lot of books, mainly through audiobooks. I like my kind of thing is I have, when it comes to content creation, I have three types of content I'll consume: um, books, and I put my book time in my my chores. Um, when I'm eating, when I'm travelling, so when I'm in my car or on my bike. Uh, then I have entertainment, And that's, so when it comes to podcasts, I don't really tend to listen to a lot of educational slash inspirational podcasts. I tend to like more entertainment. I love listening to comedians, so I tend to listen to a lot of comedians' podcasts and maybe movie reviews and things like that. And then I love reading um, novels when I go to bed at night. So that's kind of how I kind of base my content. So I just thought what I'll do here, Tim, is I'm just going to share... Of the books I've read recently, which ones I would highly recommend people reading. And I'll put the links to this on my show notes for this week's episode. Obviously, the gluten I will be on that, in those show notes as well. Um, and then maybe what I'll do is kind of every three months or every kind of three or four months, I'll just kind of share some books that I think are worth reading over this period of time. So let me, I've just got here. Obviously, Made the Stick, which I kind of read recently, which I had the author on the show with. Um, let me have a look here. I talked about this one on I Am Talk recently and it's called Daring Greatly and the reason I read Daring Greatly is I have this friend who I go camping with and she's a psychologist who works with sex offenders at a jail in New Zealand you know these are the really you know bad people in society for really terrible reasons and her job is to try to condition these people to maybe come back into society so her her work is massive behaviour change maybe one day I should get her on a show because when you talk to her about behaviour change, it, it's mind-blowing stuff. And um, I asked her what book would be the one book you would recommend. And the book that she recommended was a book called Daring Greatly. And it's 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 a very, very good book. The author of it, um Breanne Brown, I think her name was, is, is became quite famous from a TED talk that kind of swept you know the internet, and from there she wrote this book. And it's a it's a very, very good book. So I would recommend that book. Um, Let me have a look here. I'm just kind of pulling through all my books at the same time here. Uh, A Beautiful Question is a good book. One book I will recommend, which I really, really enjoyed, was Creativity Inc. Now, it's written by... uh, I'm not quite sure exactly who wrote it, but the the guy who, who basically was the starter of Pixar. And he... Fascinating book, really. What he does is basically just tells the Pixar story, but then shares a lot of the philosophies around the way that Pixar goes about running business. And um, and it's just a lot of great insight in around, uh, I don't know, not just business stuff, but as in just how to work yourself. I thought it was really good. Um, Quiet by Susan Kahn. I think it's a highly recommend that book. And it's kind of very much a book around... Hmm, what's, what was that book around? It's basically around the whole idea that the world is set up for extroverts and that uh, the introvert has been suppressed in ways that are actually kind of damaging for the world because introverts offer so much. And also for those introverts out there, how do you allow yourself to realize it's okay to be an introvert, not to be something you're not? So it's a very, very good book. Um, I always recommend The Relationship Cure by John Gottman, I think that's one of the greatest books of all time um, yeah, that's probably enough for now maybe just one other book, I, I recommended this one on I Am Talk a few weeks ago called The Four Pillars of Investing, I think money is a really important part of our lives it's actually interesting, I do this mentoring work and I had a client a while ago and I never used to bring up money unless they told me that you know money was an area they were trying to work on and um, and Turned out this person was really struggling with money, it turned out it was uh, causing big issues in other areas of their lives. And they'd never really addressed this part of their life and it was becoming this big problem. And then once we addressed it and started working on their financial system and their approach, it made massive change to their lives. And I think that our financial responsibility and our financial tools have a massive influence on the well-being of our lives. It's funny, if you look at research into one of the biggest causes of relationship problems, financial concerns is often one of the biggest problems when we look at relationships. Now, if you can become good with money, like, like just think about yourself right now, if you're someone who's really poor with money, well, how much time do you spend thinking about money? How much time in your day are you spending worrying about money? Now, if you can overcome that, then what could you use that time to do that with more powerful things in your life? And there's kind of two books um, I, I would recommend when it comes to money. The first is a guy called Dave Ramsey. He's got a, actually, that's a podcast you could listen to, the Dave Ramsey podcast. He does a financial show in America uh, called, well, I'm not sure what it was, the Dave Ramsey show. And he's got, a, he has, basically, he's got really good basic principles around basic financial systems i'm not sure dave ramsey has a certain way of thinking in different areas what i don't always necessarily agree with but when it comes to his financial advice i highly recommend listening to his work he's got a book called financial peace which is a really good book that gives you an understanding of basic financial advice and then um, the, the intelligent asset investor or the intelligent investor by william bernstein is a really good way to look at your share market investing strategies and uh, he's also got one called the four pillars of investing so there's a few books that you can get your head into tim i'll put those on my show notes for today's show so you can go there and get them Um, and again what i might do is every couple months i might just chuck a lot of books out there and you guys can do go and get them if you want to Um, once again if you want to become a patron of the show go to my website bevanjamesoz.com just maybe if you want to chuck a couple dollars my way or if you want to chuck a million dollars my way i'm more than happy to take it Um, if you want to chuck me any email questions bevanjames at gmail.com yeah get out there have a great week team and i'll see you guys in a couple weeks